Balance is a myth. And for years, I fought for balance and ended up wasting time and energy on false notions of perfection. After anxiety attacks, bouts with depression and health issues, I had to learn to flow with the inevitable imbalance. I learned that being perfectly imperfect was okay. Disrupting balance is for real women who are exhausted with fighting for balance. It is for you, your life, your experience, your truth, and all of the chaos in between. I am Hanifa Barnes, and I am disrupting balance by finding harmony in the imbalance of work, well-being, and the in-between. Find me, follow, and subscribe at Disrupting Balance on all platforms. Rubia Subhani is a trained pediatric neuropsychologist who had a spiritual epiphany in 2013, and she became immersed in learning mindfulness and self-compassion. She was so profoundly impacted by what she learned that she ended up retraining in multiple evidence-based mindfulness programs so she could teach mindfulness. You don't want to miss this life-changing episode, especially if you're a parent of a child who is neurodiverse. In this episode, Rubia shares her life-changing moment as well as mindfulness and meditation practices that can help you develop the self-care and self-compassion that is crucial. You can also get access to her free downloadable link on mindfulness at www.drrabia.com. That's www.drrabia.com. And for more on how to connect with Rubia, please listen to the show notes and I'll have all the details there. Hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to the podcast, Rubia. I am so glad that you've joined us today. I know you've got some wonderful information to share with the audience. So we're going to jump right in and start with what is your story? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So my story is that um, about eight or nine years ago, I went through a lot of life changes and I had trained as a um, psychologist, neuropsychologist, and I did a lot of testing with children that had some kind of developmental issue or brain injuries or something like that. And then ironically, a few years after I trained, I had a son with um, autism and I like to tell everybody that at least I knew what to do because I'd already trained in it. But uh, eight or nine years ago, we went through a lot of life changes, went through a divorce, um, we moved houses, my son started junior high, uh, hit puberty. And so with all of the things going on, he really uh, kind of had a lot of behavioral challenges. And I had trained, not trained, I had, I had actually taught him mindfulness when he was really young, like four or five. And so when all these changes happened, I was hoping that that training would really help him with all the uh, challenges going on, but he actually just kind of forgot everything he'd learned. And so we were into this rut of yelling and screaming, and it was very an unhealthy situation. I felt so much blame and guilt because I was a professional. I should have known better. Um, I was yelling at my own child and I was like, that was not what he needed. And so I decided that if I couldn't change quote unquote, his behaviors, and maybe I needed to change how I was responding to his behaviors. So I went on my own spiritual journey. I went on multiple spiritual retreats. I got completely immersed into mindfulness. And one day I was on retreat and I had this like major epiphany 
that the reason why my son had not been able to uh, remember his mindfulness teachings was because I had never modeled them for him. In my mind, he was the one with the issues. So he was the one that needed to learn mindfulness, not me. And that was such a huge mistake because I wasn't modeling it for him. I wasn't remaining calm when he was getting upset. Um, and it was it was such a huge aha moment that, oh my gosh, if I had been doing it with him, for him, then he would have been able to react um, better and he would have been able to understand, oh, so this is how a person should act when they're upset. They should take some deep breaths and they should relax, not scream back at me. And so when I did this, those, those retreats and they had been for me, but I found so much spiritual peace and calm and uh, self-compassion for myself. I did a lot of self-compassion um, readings and uh, affirmations during this time as well, because I had always been pretty self-confident as a woman. But when I went through the divorce, I really started questioning everything because I hadn't seen it coming. And I just was like, oh, no, what, you know, where did I go wrong? I, I'm the horrible, I was a horrible spouse. I'm a horrible mother and all this self-blame and guilt and shame. And so when I started doing all these spiritual the retreats and trainings, I really started having much more self-compassion for myself. And with the mindfulness trainings in ta- with, you know, all of those to combine, I was like, you know what, I need to go out and teach this to other families because not everybody knows it's not, it's getting more mainstream now, but it's still not, you know, like where it could be. And so I decided to retrain, uh, essentially kicking out my, you know, years and years of <laughs> neuropsychology training. And I thought, you know, this is something that I'm going to be so passionate about and something that I'm going to be able to teach from uh, the bottom of my heart and hope it can bring other parents as much and caregivers as much peace as it does for me. So that's where I did a retrain for several years in different programs. Um, ended up not finding any one program that had everything I wanted in it because I wanted to teach families about mindfulness. I wanted to teach them about self-compassion because so many parents of neurodiverse children have have blame and guilt like I did. Um, I wanted to teach them positive psychology because um, you need to have hope for the future. It's not enough to just be present in the moment. You need to have something to take you forward. And then uh, backed up with neuroscience because that was where I started. And I wanted to have that um, you know, in the, in the repertoire. Look, this is evidence-based training. This is not something I'm just you know, pulling out of the ether. <laughs> so yeah, so that's my story. Yeah. So let's go back a bit. Um, so nine years ago, you got divorced. What was happening in your life? Like, were you working a full-time job? How old was your son at the time? What were some of those day-to-day dynamics that you were engrossed in that had now completely been upended? And how was that for you? Yeah. So I was um, actually working part-time. I was working about mm, maybe 20, 25 hours a week uh, because I worked while my son was in school and then I would come home. um, So I would bring him home after school. But um, it was, you know, we've been doing okay. Um, I think when all of this started happening, I had started getting frustrated with work because I loved what I did, but I had so much paperwork to bring home. And sometimes I didn't have enough time. And I felt really bad if I didn't have time for my son. And um, so that was always in the back of my mind a little bit. So I had cut my hours a little bit. But when this all started happening, he just really fell apart. He was having trouble in school. He had just started a new school. Um, 
And then I was going through my own stress and issues. And so I got to the point where I had to, I had to quit my job. I told my boss, I was like, you know, I love my job, but I, I need to be there for him. He needs me more than I need to be here at this time. So I ended up quitting my job and I decided I was going to uh, just take off a little bit of time, spend some time with him. And, you know, we were having all these behavioral issues as well. So it was, uh, it was a really frustrating time, um, you know, dealing with him starting new school. And we had to move houses a few times with the separation and everything. And, uh, and then I started doing my own spiritual journey and I thought, you know what, I, um, was lucky to have the resources. I'm like, I'm going to need to spend some time on myself because I need, I've never really done self-care. Um, I was always about put the child first. He needs me. I don't need to worry about what I'm doing. I need to worry about him. And I realized that that's probably not the best attitude to take um, as a parent, because if you if you drain your soul battery, as I like to call it, then you are depleted and you have nothing to offer anybody else. And yeah. so, right. So. so when and when you quit the job, did you also ask yourself some of those clarifying questions around? you know, well, who am I professionally? Who, what is my identity? Am I still going to be good enough when I choose to step back into work? Did those thoughts go through your head? And then how did you decipher all of that considering everything else that was going on? Yes, absolutely. Um, I didn't know how long I was going to be out. I had I literally quit my job with this um, clinic that I worked at. So I, if I went back, I would have to restart on my own, like a private practice or something. And I had already been questioning if this is the this is the path I wanted to keep for the rest of my life. So when I got, had the opportunity to start um, thinking about getting into mindfulness, and I had not really focused on therapy in my practice, it was probably eighty percent testing. So this was a huge shift from where I was going. But the more I got into mindfulness, the more I saw the value for families, especially that had neurodiverse children. Um, about how um, it helped, and, and not only for the parents, but also for the children, because mindfulness helps you ground yourself, helps you come back to where you are, into your body, and it's a beautiful practice for the the families and their children. So, for me, it seemed like a very well rounded approach. Um, and one of the other things I'd been frustrated frustrated about was that I had um, would give the diagnosis to the families, like your child has, you know, so and so issue. But there wasn't really a really good therapy per se for a lot of these children who were not um, able to do like talk therapy. You know, a lot of these kids were overwhelmed. They couldn't, they didn't know how to verbalize very well. Um, some of them were too old for like play therapy, which doesn't require you to talk. And when I got into the mindfulness, I was like, this is beautiful. This is a perfect thing to tell somebody who's already got the diagnosis that you can do this at home with your child. You don't have to take them to a special therapy service. It's free. It's all over the internet. Um, so there was just so many, it was like a, a, a kind of a no-brainer, so to speak, because it was not only beneficial for the parents, but for the children as well. And it was something that had been missing from my part as a psychologist that I could, you know, this was a missing piece that I had been looking for to, that I could offer. But yeah, I was absolutely questioning, what am I going to do when I go back? How am I going to, you know, am I going to be able to do something else? Because the job I had was really, um, was very comfortable for me because they had all, you know, the clinic was all, it was a, actually a speech and hearing clinic, but I was the only psychologist there. So I didn't have to do with paperwork or any of that stuff. I just went in and tested and I didn't know if I could find, I'm in a small town. I didn't know if I could find something like that well again, but I was like, I need to prioritize 
myself and my child right now. And so, so did you, did you have like resources, personal resources, like whether friends, family members, or people in your community that you could rely on? I mean, just to talk to, just to vent with, or, or other parents who may be similarly situated. Did you have that community for yourself? Um, I kind of had to carve my community for myself online because I'm in a smaller town in the South and um, there aren't a lot of, first of all, there are not a, there weren't a lot of people that were even knew anything about mindfulness in where I'm, where am I, I'm living. And then also, um, yeah, I really, um, I really had to go online, I think, to look because I wanted to find people that were, um, first of all, I really got into the spirituality piece and that was so important to me. I wanted to find other people that were uh, looking, reading the same material I was reading. So I joined a lot of book clubs and a lot of author Facebook pages that had, um, you know, that were all reading the same book and they could help me work through. I was into non-duality and universal consciousness and all these, these spiritual topics that a lot of people in my town, in my area, and even among my friends we're not aware of or we're not discussing. So I had to go out and make new friends. Um, I met a lot of wonderful people on the retreats. So I stayed in touch with them. Um, I actually ended up creating Facebook groups for almost every retreat I went on so we could stay in touch because I was like, I'm going back to my small town and all these people live in these wonderful, huge towns with big spiritual centers and mindfulness you know, classes galore. And I was like, oh, I'm going back to my small town and um, but yeah, it's, but it's a great way to meet new people. It was, you know, it made me step out of my comfort zone because I'm a little bit of an introvert. Uh, made me step out of my comfort zone and reach out to other people and say, you know, would you like to stay in touch? And and it's hard to do when you're on a silent retreat. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to talk about that later because I'm interested in the silent retreat piece. But before that, you, you mentioned that you studied autism, right? Yes, I specialized in it. <laughs> specialized in it. And then you gave birth to an autistic child. Yes. <laughs> what was the psychology going on in your head? I was really surprised at first, but I had actually trained with um, children who are a little bit more severe. Mm -hmm. So I actually missed his diagnosis for the first maybe two and a half years. Um, he didn't have any of the typical red flags. Um, he had great eye contact. He was very affectionate. He um, uh, didn't have any unusual movements. Um, and the only thing was he was uh, not speaking on time. He was His speech was delayed. But my pediatrician said, oh, he's a boy and uh, he's you're teaching him two languages. And so he's, you know, that's why it's going on. But by two and a half, I was like, yeah, that's a little bit late. So I did take him to speech therapy. And then um, I think by the time he was, maybe he'd been in speech therapy for about three months, he started doing these unusual like hand movements where he would kind of flap his hands. And that's a big red flag. So then I was like, oh, oh like I think I think I know what this is. <laughs> so I did have him evaluated by somebody else. But yeah, he was very, very, um, at that time they didn't have um, – uh, you didn't have to have a specific diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. You could have something called PDD-NOS, which was that you met a few of the criteria, but not all of them. And that's what he got diagnosed as. So it wasn't, he's, he was very, what they call mild. Um, but nowadays it's all one. So it doesn't really matter. And you just have, you know, different levels, but um, yeah, so I kind of missed it. And then, you know, once I realized it just started doing all the things that I had been trained in to do with him. 
Yeah. And so with that in mind, did you feel like, okay, I got this. I've been trained in this. You know, now that I know kind of where we are, I can handle this. I can do it. I mean, did you feel at least like you had a notch on the belt in that regard? Yes. I actually was very, um, I think lots of parents, when they get the diagnosis, go through a period of, uh, you know, I don't want to call it mourning, but it's kind of like a the acceptance that your child is is not neurotypical. And so I went, I actually went through that very briefly. I already had kind of had a suspicion there was something going on, but um, I did. I was actually very, very grateful. And I was, I felt very blessed that I had already trained and I didn't have to go find outside help. I could do stuff with him that I had um, learned through my trainings. And actually that's when I made the decision that I was going to, with my ex, that I was going to stay at home and train him and teach him and work with him with everything I'd learned until he started school. And that's what I did. So I stayed with him and, um, until he was ready to start. And he was, you know, he, he he had mostly like social issues. They weren't, uh, terribly severe. So it was just adjustment for both of us. Yeah. And so kind of moving this along, because you talked about the major shifts and kind of that imbalance that happened for you at that period in your life and going through that process of really understanding what your son needed and what you needed, you were able to really kind of find that harmony in all of that. Right. Um, But I I guess I want to understand, was there a turning point, right? You talked about the retreats and aha, but even before that, was there a turning point, an incident or something said that triggered this thought, like, I've got to do something different? Yeah, um, I think it was um, a period where um, he had, I think he was having trouble in school. And we went through a literally a two week period where he was melting down every day, like more than once. And at that point, it had been more like, every couple of days, but we went through this two, maybe almost two and a half weeks where every day there was something. And I got to the point where I was like, things have got to change because there, we cannot go on this way. It was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. I was just like, I was like, this is it. I'm done. I was at the point where I was like, we've got to do something. Either he needs some kind of intensive training or, um, and I don't remember exactly which point it was, but at, at some point I finally thought, why am I working so hard to change him? Why don't I just change how I'm reacting? And that, that was the key that I needed to start my own kickstart, my own process, my own personal growth. Um, I was like, I had been so focused on it's all about him. It's all about him that I didn't think, oh, I'm the one who's the adult here. And although I've been having a lot of guilt and shame, I wasn't, um, I think I was so mired in it at the time that I couldn't think clearly. And I don't remember what it was, but I think it was just at the end at one point, I just got to the point where I think I'd cried myself to sleep and I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I can't, I can't keep doing this because we were both so miserable. And um, I had actually moved us out of an apartment into a rental house because I was scared that his screaming would cause the neighbors to call the the Department of Family Services or something that I was like, because <laughs> he would scream at the top of his lungs and he had a healthy set of lungs and it was melting down all the time. So yeah, it was just that point where I was like, this can't go on. We're both miserable. We're both depressed. We're screaming at each other when we only have each other right now to rely on. And my family doesn't live here. They actually live two hours away. 
Um, but he didn't want to be with them either. He just wanted to be with me, but I was his safe place. So he felt completely apart with me, but nowhere else, which a lot of, you know, is typical for a lot of children, uh, especially with neurodiverse issues. They hold it together at school. Uh, they hold it together at all of their therapies. They get home and they completely lose it because uh, home is safe. That's your safe environment. Nobody's going to kick you out. Nobody's going to say, I don't want to see you again, take you out of the class. Nobody's going to, you may get punished, but it's, it's punished with, you know, discipline with love. And so a lot of children, um, have that he, and he was totally that. In fact, he's been like that since he was in elementary school. It's like, he would hold it together. His teachers were like, Oh, he's such an angel. (laughs) And he'd come home and he'd completely meltdown after meltdown after meltdown. And so, yeah, so it got to the, it just got to that point where I was like, something has to change. I can't, we can't keep going on like we are. And once I made that step, it was very, it was very freeing because it was like a, it was like a, oh, I have something I can do now. There's something I can focus on and, you know. And I think that's a really progressive approach to parenting because, I mean, I know my generation of parents and maybe even yours, they're more traditional in the sense that, you know, I'm the parent, you're the child. Just do what I say. If you have a problem, you need to figure it out, you know, and that's what they understood. And even when I was rearing my kids early on, that was the approach. And I realized when my kid is coming to talk to me and say, I would appreciate if you could just tell me without yelling. And, you know, after getting my ego out of the way, I'm like, "Uh huh, maybe this kid has something here. (laughs) And so I think it's a really progressive approach to say as a a parent, especially a mother, because we take on so much to say, I need to change. And that's powerful. Yes. And Do you bring that into your work when you talk to parents? So let's kind of transition into that about your work. First, what is mindfulness? So people have a clear understanding, because even though people are, it's the buzzword in a lot of spaces, social media. Can you explain from a professional perspective, what is mindfulness? Yes, sure. So mindfulness is bringing your attention to the present moment with a loving, non-judgmental awareness. So what that means in practical terms is that whatever activity you're doing, whatever your uh, task you're completing, if you're, even if you're eating, you bring your entire focus to that one specific thing without thinking about the past, without thinking about the future, you know, letting go of the to-do lists and having thoughts about whatever you're doing. You just let it all go out and you just focus on it. So what I like to teach uh, families usually, uh, food is really easy one to do that with. And the other thing is like any kind of daily activity, like if you're brushing your teeth. So for example, if you were brushing your teeth, you could... Um, Focus on the water coming out of the faucet. Watch it as it comes out. Notice, hear the sounds as it hits the sink. Um, Take out your toothbrush. And as you're putting the toothpaste on, notice the color of the toothpaste, the size of the bristles. You're completely focused on your task. So there's there's no reason to think. And then when you're brushing your teeth, you feel the sensation against your mouth. You can even close your eyes. And you can taste the toothpaste. You can maybe when you put the water in it, you you feel the water as it rushes into your mouth. Um, Everything you do, all that you are is just present. There's nothing else. And if you do that with, if you get get really into the habit of doing that with um, like at least one daily task and maybe one food, like the breakfast is usually the easiest because that's pretty much routine for most people. But the more you do the practice, the more you start doing it in other things. Like I'll do it when I'm uh, 
anytime I'm outside, I try to be very mindful because that's a perfect place to notice the sounds and the smells. Um, walking meditation is a beautiful practice because you just, you're totally focused on, um, you know, the, the sensations of things around you, the sounds, the birds, the, you know, you can see the leaves rustling, the grass, the flowers. Um, so anytime you can bring your focus to whatever activity you're doing, and this can be, I mean, it can be anything mundane from doing the laundry to, you know, whatever shower meditation is one of the perfect places to do it. Close your eyes. You feel the water, warm water rushing down your face and down your body, and uh, you're not thinking about anything and just feeling the water on you. But anywhere you can do that, you start incorporating it. The more you become mindful, the more you become aware of things as they arise. Um, one of the things I like to teach also is about mindfulness of body. So noticing your body sensations. And um, I have several meditations up on my website if you want to tell people, your listeners at the end. But there's a meditation called a body scan where you basically start, you might have heard of this, it's, it's very similar to like a progressive muscle relaxation, except you don't actually clench and unclench the muscles. You really just start at the bottom of your feet and go all the way up and you notice gently what sensations are, are arising in your body, temperature changes, pain, and you just gently acknowledge that it's there and let it go. But when you do this gentle scan of your body and do it like maybe twice a week, then you start noticing places in your body where you may have tension. Like perhaps you tense your neck when you get uh, anxious about something. And then when you get, when you become more, um, have this as a regular practice, you'll start noticing that your, your neck muscles are tensing up and you can stop it before it becomes a headache. I hear all that. And <laughs> I hear you. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no. And you know, I, I meditate every morning at least 15 minutes. I've been doing it oh. since the beginning of August. So it was good very good as an intention that I was dead set on really manifesting. But I found in meditation still, which is what I am thinking and hearing this with mindfulness is my mind is racing <laughs> with everything. I mean, I'm a planner. I, I work in operations. I'm very task oriented. Um, I am big on making my list and knocking things off the list. And when I sit and try to create that space, I am constantly in my head like swatting things out of my head. And I've had to kind of in meditation, just create a visual of a place of peace, which is my, my visual is sitting on the beach with a wrap. The sun is rising and there's no one on the beach. And I'm just looking at the infinite stretch of the ocean across the horizon. And that brings me back. But what do you tell folks who are like, I can't, my mind, it just keeps racing. It keeps going. What are the practices? What are the tools to like stop that or at least minimize it? Okay. So yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it is a very, very common question. So first I would say that we're not trying to stop our thoughts. We're trying to not let them distract us. Like we want to let them gently go. So kind of like, say you were, um, lying on the grass, watching the clouds. So you can see the sky behind the clouds and you may notice the clouds as they're passing by, but you don't pay them attention. Like you don't, you just notice them going by out of the corner of your eye, but you keep your gaze focused on the sky. So the thoughts may come and go, but they don't distract you anymore from quieting your mind down. 
it's impossible for us to not think. Um, it's, but even very experienced meditators, we have what we call monkey mind, where you're jumping from branch to branch of your thoughts. But the key is to just notice them. And, and the more you practice, just like you said, and I would also encourage you that if you feel like you're having a really difficult time, you don't necessarily have to do a sitting meditation. Uh, the best thing, first of all, is to have a very consistent practice. So even if you only do two or five minutes a day, it's better to do that than to do two 20 minutes in a week because it's a consistency. It's getting used to doing it every day. Um, so if you can't do it for 20 minutes one day, just do it for five. At least you did some. Uh, the second thing is if you don't, if you really just can't sit down and do it, you don't have to. You can do a walking meditation. You can do a body scan. You can do uh, just mindfulness practices during the day. Uh, it doesn't necessarily always have to look the same. So some days I'm like very restless and I'll just go outside and walk very mindfully, noticing everything in the, in the nature. Um, sometimes I'll switch where I'm sitting. Like I have a very nice meditation area, but I'm like, I just need to go and sit outside on the grass or something. Um, some days I just feel like lying down and cause I'm tired and I don't even want to sit. So I'll lie down and do a body scan. So it can, your meditation can take lots of different forms. Um, so you don't, and you can do visualization. Like you said, you can do where you focus on your breath. You can do a self-compassion meditation. Some days I'm like, if I'm being hard on myself, I'll just say some words of comfort to myself. And, uh, it, so there, there are hundreds of different meditations you can do. So it's just finding the. Yeah. So in working with families that have neurodiverse children, well, first, what is neurodiverse? So for folks listening, so they understand what that is. Yes. So neurodiverse just means you're not neurotypical, meaning that you have something like ADHD, autism, mood disorder, brain injury, anything, anything other than the typical. And, and so it's already a challenge as we've talked through with kind of doing this work and practice on yourself. It's a process. I'll call it a process. How then are you one conveying this to the parents for themselves then who also have to now figure out how to make this work for them with their neurodiverse child? How do you do that? So part of it is really telling them my story is that this is what I found because coming from a professional and a parent background, it just lands more with a lot of people because I've done the work. I know how to do it like mainstream, uh, you know, psychologically what you should be doing, but also I've, as a parent, I've done, I've done it all. And I can tell them from a very um, authentic place, you know, what really works and what has worked with families that I've worked with. And, um, I really, really stress to them, and this is something that I think parents and caregivers of neurodiverse children don't hear enough, is that self-care and self-compassion is so crucial because so many of us are not, we're hard on ourselves, we blame ourselves, we uh, think we're horrible parents because we end up yelling sometimes. And so first acknowledging that all those things are there and realizing that you're not the only one going through it. So having, you know, a community of uh, other parents who are in a similar situation is one. So, so really emphasizing the community support and then, you know, bringing home to them about how important it is to have your own self-care in place. Because if you are not taking care of yourself, you're not able to take care of your child. And I like to use the oxygen mask analogy from the airplanes. I'm like, you've got to put on your mask first because you're not going to be, you're not doing your child any 
good by depleting your own resources. And I know it's hard for a lot of uh, parents to hear this, but they've got to do it. They've got to start taking care of themselves. And so I tell them, like my program that I've created is right now just geared towards the parents. And I'm going to have one geared towards the kids next year. But in in the program, I have at least um, a couple of lessons that teach you how to get your children involved in the mindfulness practices. So for example, like the eating one is a perfect one. Like the one I teach them is about eating a raisin mindfully. And um, I'll, I'll give your listeners a downloadable workbook at the end, and they'll have these exercises in it so they can practice these with their children um, or themselves, whoever wants to do it. But I teach them how to teach their kids how to eat mindfully. And that's something the whole family can do together. And that's actually an activity that children really like. Oh, that's good. And thank you so much for that um, that downloadable book. So, And I'll talk more about it in the show notes and even in the closing. So I really appreciate that piece. And I feel so calm. You know, when we started, I felt uh, really hyper because I just came in from the office and, you know, I talked to my husband, my kids and and then I'm like, okay, I need to settle. I need to settle. And I was just waiting. You know, I'm telling myself, settle, 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 instead of just kind of allowing myself to be aware that I was unsettled. I'm trying to tell myself to settle. Um, but that's great so, insight. That's huh? great insight. Yeah. I, would, yeah. would you have had this insight a year ago? Nope. See, nope. So not your at all. practice is paying off? Oh, yeah. That's good yeah. to hear. <laughs> that's good to hear. And it's I those little that. things. It's those, those little, little things, things that you, you don't realize yeah. How much your practices affect you. And my first uh, time that I figured it out was when I went. Um, so I'm like an impatient driver. I don't <laughs> I don't hawk the horn or anything, but I get really irritated when people cut me off. Uh-huh. And I'll be like, you know, I'll be quietly cussing, not loud enough for anybody to hear <laughs> me or see me. But I'm like, when they see me, I was right there. So the first time I noticed that my practices were paying off was when I was uh, I was driving somewhere and somebody suddenly pulled out in front of me and like literally screeched their tires. And, and instead of, and I had to break hard, but instead of getting really upset, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I wonder if that person has an emergency and maybe somebody's in the hospital and they're, and my first thought was of compassion. And then I had that, oh my gosh, aha moment. I actually had compassion instead of cussing. That's a I huge be, win. I must be getting something. That's huge. <laughs> that driving thing is serious. So that's a really yes. huge win. <laughs> yes. I knew I like I knew I was gonna make it. <laughs> yeah. If I wow. can come for the road rage that or, or whatever, exactly. you know, the then I know I've actually made some serious yes. progress. I am Rabia Subhani, and I am disrupting balance by trying to serve all the women in the world and help them find their self-compassion and empower them. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I truly, truly appreciate you and know that I am working to build a community of balance disruptors. Those are women who are working to find harmony in the imbalance of work well-being and the in-between. And if you're interested in joining, go to www.disruptingbalance.com and you'll get occasional emails and messages around health, harmony, and mindset to get you through the imbalance of your day. You can also follow me on social media at Disrupting Balance on all platforms, or if there is a particular topic you want to hear on the podcast, shoot me a message at info at disruptingbalance.com. Lastly, 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It truly helps us to grow and move forward and disrupt balance. Talk soon.